Section 11 of The Golden Bough, Part 3, The Dying God, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 7. Succession to the Soul. A custom of putting kings to death at short intervals might extinguish the families from which the kings were drawn but this tendency would be no bar to the observance of the custom. To the view that in early times, and Mahambaras raises, kings have frequently been put to death at the end of a short reign, it may be objected that such a custom would tend to the extinction of the royal family. The objection may be met by observing, first, that the kingship is often not confined to one family, but may be shared in turn by several. Second, that the office is frequently not hereditary, but is open to men of any family, even to foreigners, who may fulfil the requisite conditions, such as marrying a princess or vanquishing the king in battle. And third, that even in the custom did tend to the extinction of the dynasty. That is not a consideration which will prevent its observance among people less provident of the future and less heedful of human life than ourselves. Many races have indulged in practices which tend directly to their extinction. Many races, like many individuals, have indulged in practices which must in the end destroy them, not to mention such customs as collective suicide and the prohibition of marriage, both of which may be set down to religious mania. We have seen that the Polynesians killed two-thirds of their children. In some parts of East Africa, the proportion of infants massacred at birth is said to be the same. Only children born in certain presentations are allowed to live. The Jagas, a conquering tribe in Angola, are reported to have put to death all their children, without exception, in order that the women might not be cumbered with babies on the march. They recruited their number by adopting boys and girls of 13 or 14 years of age, whose parents they had killed and eaten. Among the Mabea Indians of South America, the women used to murder all their children except the last, or the one they believed to be the last. If one of them had another child afterwards, she killed it. We need not wonder that this practice entirely destroyed a branch of the Mabaya nation, who had been for many years the most formidable enemies of the Spaniards. Among the Lengua Indians of the Grand Chaco, the missionaries discovered what they described as a carefully planned system of racial suicide by the practice of infanticide by abortion and other methods. Nor is infanticide the only mode in which a savage tribe commits suicide. A lavish use of the poison ordeal may be equally effective. Some time ago a small tribe named Uet came down from the hill country and settled on the left branch of the Calabar River in West Africa. When the missionaries first visited the place, they found the population considerable, distributed into three villages. Since then the costing youth the poison ordeal has almost extinguished the tribe. On one occasion the whole population took poison to prove their innocence. About half perished on the spot, and the remnant we are told still continuing their superstitious practice, must soon become extinct. With such examples before us, we need not hesitate to believe that many tribes have felt no scruple or delicacy in observing a custom which tends to wipe out a single family. To attribute such scruples to them is to commit the common, the perpetually repeated mistake of judging the savage by the standard of European civilization. If any of my readers set out with the notion that all races of men think and act in the same way as educated Englishmen, the evidence of superstitious belief and custom collected in the volumes of this work should suffice to disabuse him of so erroneous a preposition.
Transmission of the Soul of the Slain King to His Successor The explanation here given of the custom of killing divine persons assumes, or this is really combined with, the idea that the soul of the slain divinity is transmitted to his successor. Of this transmission I have no direct proof, except in the case of the Shilak, among whom the practice of killing the divine king prevails in a typical form, and with whom it is a fundamental article of faith that the soul of the divine founder of the dynasty is imminent in every one of his slain successors. But if this is the only actual example of such a belief which I can adduce, analogy seems to render it probable that a similar succession to the soul of the slain god has been supposed to take place in other instances, though direct evidence of it is wanting. For it has been already shown that the soul of the incarnate deity is often supposed to transmigrate at death into another incarnation. And if this takes place when the death is a natural one, there seems no reason why it should not take place when the death has been brought about by violence. Transmission of the souls of chiefs to their sons in Nais Certainly the idea that the soul of a dying person may be transmitted to his successor is perfectly familiar to primitive peoples. In Nais, the eldest son usually succeeds his father in the chieftainship. But if from any bodily or mental defect, the eldest son is disqualified for ruling. The father determines in his lifetime which of his sons shall succeed him. In order, however, to establish his right of succession, it is necessary that the son upon whom his father's choice falls shall catch in his mouth or in a bag the last breath, and with it the soul of the dying chief. For whoever catches his last breath is chief equally with the appointed successor. Hence the other brothers, and sometimes also strangers, crowd round the dying man to catch his soul as it passes. The houses in Nias are raised above the ground on posts. And it has happened that when the dying man lay with his face on the floor, one of the candidates has bored a hole in the floor and sucked in the chief's last breath through a bamboo tube. When the chief has no son, his soul is caught in a bag which is fastened to an image made to represent the deceased. The soul is believed to pass into the image. Succession to the soul among the American Indians and other races. Among the Tequilias, or carrier Indians of Northwest America, when a corpse was buried, the priest pretended to catch the soul of the deceased in his hands, which he closed with many gesticulations. He then communicated the captured soul to the dead man's successor by throwing his hands towards and blowing upon him. The person to whom the soul was thus communicated took the name and rank of the deceased. On the death of a chief, the priest thus filled a responsible and influential position, for he might transmit the soul to whom he would, though doubtless he generally followed the regular line of succession. In Guatemala, when a great man lay at the point of death, they put a precious stone between his lips to receive the parting soul, and this was afterwards kept as a memorial by the nearest kinsman or most intimate friend. Algonquin women, who wished to become mothers, fought to the side of a dying person in the hope of receiving and being impregnated by the passing soul. Among the Seminoles of Florida, when a woman died in childbirth, the infant was held over her face to receive her parting spirit. When infants died within a month or two of birth, the Huron Indians did not lay them in bark coffins on poles, as they did with other corpses, but buried them beside the paths, in order that they might secretly enter into the wombs of passing women, and be born again. The Tonquinese cover the face of a dying person with a handkerchief, and at the moment when he breathes his last, they fold up the handkerchief carefully, thinking that they have caught the soul in it. 
the Romans caught the breath of dying friends in their mouths, and so received into themselves the soul that departed. The same custom is said to be still practised in Lancashire. Succession to the Soul in Africa On the seventh day after the death of a king of Ginkiro, the sorcerers bring to his successor, wrapped in a piece of silk, a worm which they say comes from the nose of the dead king, and they make the new king kill the worm by squeezing his head between his teeth. The ceremony seems to be intended to convey the spirit of the deceased monarch to his successor. The Dunakil, or Afars of Eastern Africa, believe that the soul of a magician will be born again in the first mounted senate of the man who was most active in attending on the dying magician in his last hours. Hence, when a magician is ill, he receives many attentions. Inspired representatives of dead kings in Africa In Uganda, the spirit of the king, who had been the last to die, manifested itself from time to time in the person of a priest, who he prepared for the discharge of his exalted function by a peculiar ceremony. When the body of the king has been embalmed and had lain for five months in the tomb, which was a house built specially for it, the head was severed from the body and laid in an ant hill. Having been stripped of flesh by the insects, the skull was washed in a particular river, the Nyabuwuru, and filled with native beer. One of the late king's priests then drank the beer out of the skull, and thus became himself a vessel meant to receive the spirit of the deceased monarch. The skull was afterwards replaced in the tomb, but the lower jaw was separated from it and deposited in a jar, and this jar, being swathed in bark cloth, and decorated with beads as to look like a man, henceforth represented the late king. A house was built for its reception in the shape of a beehive and divided into two rooms, an inner and an outer. Any person might enter the outer room, but in the inner room the spirit of the dead king was supposed to dwell. In front of the petition was set a throne covered with lion and leopard skins, and fenced off on the rest of the chamber by a rail of spears, shields and knives most of them made of copper and brass, and beautifully worked. When the priest, who had fitted himself to receive the king's spirit, desired to converse with the people in the king's name, he went to the throne, and, addressing the spirit in the inner room, informed him of the business in hand. Then he smoked one or two pipes of tobacco, and a few minutes began to rave, which was a sign that the spirit had entered into him. In this condition he spoke with a voice and made known the wishes of the late king. When he had done so, the spirit left him and returned into the inner room, and he himself departed a mere man as before. Every year at the new moon of September, the king of Sofala in eastern Africa used to perform obsequies for the kings, his predecessors, on the top of a high mountain, where they were buried. In the course of the lamentations for the dead, the soul of the king who had died last used to enter into a man who imitated the deceased monarch, both in voice and gesture. The living king conversed with this man, as with his dead father, consulting him in regard to the affairs of the kingdom and receiving his oracular replies. These examples show that provision is often made for the ghostly succession of kings and chiefs. In the Hausa kingdom of Dora, in northern Nigeria, where the kings used regularly to put to death from the first symptoms of failing health, the new king had to step over the corpse of his predecessor and to be bathed in the blood of a black ox the skin of which then served as a shroud for the body of the late king. The ceremony may well have been intended to convey the spirit of the dead king to his successor. Certainly, we know that many primitive peoples 
attribute a magic virtue to the act of stepping over a person. Right of succession to the kingdom conferred by possession of personal relics of dead kings. Sometimes it would appear that the spiritual link between a king and the souls of his predecessors is formed by the possession of some part of their persons. In southern Salives, as we have seen, the regalia often consist of corporeal portions of deceased rajas, which were transferred as sacred relics and confer the right to the throne. Similarly, among the Sakalavas of southern Madagascar, a vertebra of the neck, a nail, and a lock of hair of a deceased king are placed in a crocodile's tooth and carefully kept along with the similar relics of his predecessors in a house set apart for the purpose. A possession of these relics constitutes the right to the throne. A legitimate heir who should be deprived of them would lose all his authority over the people, and over the contrary, a usurper who should make himself master of the relics would be acknowledged king without dispute. It has sometimes happened that a relic of the reigning monarch has stolen the crocodile teeth with their precious contents, and then had himself proclaimed king. Accordingly, when the Hovas invaded the country, knowing the superstition of the natives, they paid less attention to the living king than to the relics of the dead, which they publicly exhibited under a strong guard on pretext of paying them the honours that were their due. In antiquity, when a king of the Panabian Libyans died, his people buried the body but cut off the head, and having covered it with gold, they dedicated it in a sanctuary. Among the Maasai of East Africa, when an important chief has been dead and buried for a year, his oldest son or other successor removes the skull of the deceased, while he, at the same time, offers a sacrifice and a libation with goat's blood, milk and honey. He then carefully secrets the skull, and possession of which is understood to confirm him in power and to impart him some of the wisdom of his predecessor. When the Alek, or king of Abiokuta in West Africa, dies, the principal men decapitate his body and place in the head in a large earthen vessel, deliver it to the new sovereign. It becomes his fetish, and he is bound to pay it honours. Similarly, when the Jaga, or king of Kassange in Angola, has departed this life, an official extracts a tooth from the deceased monarch and presents it to his successor, who deposits it along with the teeth of former kings in a box which is the sole property of the crown, and without which no jaga can legitimately exercise the regal power. Sometimes a king has to eat a portion of his predecessor. Sometimes, in order apparently that the new sovereign may inherit more surely the magical and other virtues of the royal line, he is required to eat a piece of his dead predecessor. Thus at Abiyokuta, not only was the head of the late king presented to his successor, but the tongue was cut out and given him to eat. Hence for the natives wish to signify that the sovereign reigns, they say, he is eaten the king. A custom of the same sort is still practised at Abadan, a large town in the interior of Lagos, West Africa. When the king dies, his head is cut off and sent to his normal suzerain, the Alephin of Oyo, the paramount king of Yoruba land, but his heart is eaten by his successor. This ceremony was performed a few years ago at the ascension of a new king of Ibadan. Succession to the soul of the slain king or priest. Taking the whole of the preceding evidence into account, we may further suppose that when the divine king or priest is put to death, he is supposed to believe to pass into his successor. In point of fact, we have seen that among the Shilak of the White Nile, who regularly kill the divine kings, 
Every king on his ascension has to perform a ceremony which appears designed to convey to him the same sacred and worshipful spirit, which animated all his predecessors, one after the other, on the throne. End of section 11